What's stopping you from becoming a Catholic? Why can't women become priests? Why do Catholics worship Mary? Why do I need to confess my sins to a priest? Where is purgatory in the Bible? I think the Pope has too much authority. What's stopping you? You are called to communion with Dr. David Anders on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. Hey everybody, welcome again to Call to Communion here on EWTN. It's the program for our non-Catholic brothers and sisters. Do you have a question about the Catholic faith? Maybe you're looking around trying to get the correct answer and those answers don't seem very satisfying. We can give you the, the real answer, the church, what the church teaches. That's what you want. Here's our phone number, 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. If you're listening to us in, uh, let's say, France, well, you can participate as well. We have a special number for everybody calling in from outside North America, and that is 1 and then 205 271 2985. And of course, you can always send us an email 24 hours a day, especially those of you watching on TV today. Our email address, ctc at ewtn.com, ctc at ewtn.com. Charles Beery is our producer. Matt Kabinsky is our phone screener. Rich Jesse handles social media for us. If you want to ask a question via YouTube or Facebook, we are streaming on both platforms live right now. Just put your question in the comments box, if you would, please. Rich will see that. He'll shoot it to us here in the studio, and hopefully we can answer your question on today's program. Again, the phone number, 833-288-EWTN. I'm Tom Price, along with Dr. David Anders. Tom, how are you today? Very well. How are you, sir? You know, I'm hanging in there. Thank you. I'm glad to hear that. We have an interesting email here from Joseph, who says, I object to the church's teaching on the Eucharist. The Eucharist is just symbol, and Jesus didn't literally mean people should actually eat his body. It was for spiritual purposes that he mentioned this in John 6. And again, that's from Joseph. Um, yeah, I really appreciate the the uh, question, Joseph, or the comment, or the objection. Yeah. Now, there was one thing about your objection that puzzles me and suggests a misunderstanding of the Church's teaching. When you said that Jesus didn't mean for people to literally eat his body, but rather intended this for spiritual purposes, you would seem to construe the Church's teaching as meaning that Christ instituted the Eucharist for some reason other than spiritual purposes. But the Church doesn't say that. The Church says the Eucharist is absolutely food for our souls, and the end of the Eucharist is not the nourishment of our bodies, but the nourishment of our souls. And in fact, the, the doctrine on the nature of Christ's presence in the Eucharist is such that uh, any Catholic who consumes the body and blood of Lord and Holy Communion will not actually end up metabolizing the body of Christ into their own physiology, because we think that the presence of Christ perdures only as long as the appearance of bread and wine remain, and as soon as they have dissipated, the body, bodily presence of Christ is no longer there, and so it's not going to be, it's not eaten as normal food and drink. It's okay. not eaten for purposes of satiating hunger mm, and yeah. that sort of thing. All right. Now, uh, in terms of the doctrine of the real presence, we would never have made this up, right? We only believe it on the authority of Jesus conveyed to us in Holy Scripture. And the passage that you allude to, uh, John 6, is a, is a critical one there, when Jesus says, my flesh is real food and my blood is real drink. And 
all Christian interpreters, basically for 2,000 years that have looked at the passage, understand Jesus to be talking about the sacrament of the Eucharist in this text. And I always like to point out as well that when, when Christ uh, teaches us in John 6, of course, the Gospel of John was written, most scholars believe, probably sometime in the 90s A.D. Pentecost would have been, you know, 30 A.D., 33 A.D. Yeah. So the Church has a 60-year history of celebrating the Eucharist before John ever wrote his Gospel. And so one of the reasons that John can speak in an oblique manner, a kind of cryptic manner, without explicitly naming the Eucharist or baptism in his text, he, he, he alludes to them in a kind of veiled way, because his hearers, his congregation, they already knew what he was talking about, right? They, oh, you're talking about this thing that we've been doing for 60 years that Christ instituted called the Eucharist. And so it's helpful to say, well, what, what did that antecedent community understand to be happening in the Blessed Sacrament? And that's not hard to discern, because we have, we have contemporary witnesses, uh, those that knew the apostles, who tell us precisely what they meant. One, one of them, outside the Bible, would be uh, Ignatius of Antioch, um, who, uh, who, who was familiar with the ministry of St. John through others. And he tells us that, uh, emphatically, that this refers to the real presence of Christ, and anyone that denies that essentially denies the principle of the Incarnation and has put themselves outside the Catholic faith. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, you know, keep in mind St. Paul, who tells us in the earliest description of the Eucharist in sacred scripture, that anybody who uh, sins in Holy Communion is sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. And, of course, the audience in John chapter 6, well, I should say that the, um, the hearers in the story, mm-hmm. they understood Christ to be speaking um quite realistically about his body and blood. Hence, they wouldn't have been so offended if he had meant this as a mere symbol. You know, why the great offense? Uh, why do they turn away? And uh, uh, But, you know, all Scripture can be twisted and interpreted in any number of ways. Um, and the only way to really have a definitive understanding of the meaning of any text is to situate it within that community of faith that produced the Bible and for which it was written, and that which is guided by the Holy Spirit, and that's, of course, the Catholic Church. Yes, indeed. Joseph, thanks so much uh, for your email. Here's a quick one from William. Was St. James responding to St. Paul when he wrote that one isn't saved by faith alone? Thanks. No. St. James was responding to a contemporary misinterpretation of Paul. Right? So there, there, there seemed to have been some Christians in uh, the early centuries who read St. Paul the wrong way uh-huh. and imagined that Paul was advocating that we can be saved without reference to good works. And that's, of course, false, and Paul never taught that. Um, and James seems to have been responding to them, not to Paul directly. Okay. Oh, very good. And uh, William, thanks so much for your email. Uh, If you would like to send us an email for a future show, especially those of you watching on TV today, here's the address, ctc at ewtn.com, ctc at ewtn.com. We try to uh, tackle two or three emails on each of our live programs, Monday through Friday on the radio. And then uh, once a month or so, we will uh, grab a whole bunch of emails, empty out the mailbag, and answer as many questions as we can within the that program. Again, the address ctc at ewtn.com. Hey, calls are coming in right now. In a moment, we're going to be talking with Lee, a first-time caller in New Hampshire, uh, watching us on EWTN television today. There's a line open for you. It's got your name on it, 833-288-EWTN. If you have a question for Dr. David Anders, 833-288-3986. 
called A Communion with Dr. David Andrews here on EWTN. Do stay with us. It's called a communion with Dr. David Andrews here on EWTN. If you're ready now, let's go to the phones at 833-288-EWTN, beginning with Lee, a first-time caller from New Hampshire, watching us on EWTN television today. Hey there, Lee, what's on your mind today? Hi, a couple of questions. Um, in Galatians 2, 7, verse 7 and 8, uh, it says that Peter is the apostle to the Jews and Paul is the apostle to the Gentiles that God gave Peter the work as the apostle to the Jews. And I'm confused how the Catholic Church puts Peter at the head of the Catholic Church unless the Catholic Church became Jewish sometime. Yeah, thanks. I appreciate the question. So um, Peter had a couple of jobs, if you will. Uh, When Christ in Matthew 28 sent the eleven out, and said, make disciples of all nations and teach them everything that I have commanded you. Mm-hmm. Uh, that commission took them to the ends of the, of the earth. But Peter specifically uh, focused his apostolic mission to the Jews. And that was his specific vocation, was to preach uh, Christ as the Messiah among the Jews. And first century Christianity was a largely Jewish phenomenon. There was a controversy that arose about the status of Gentiles who also come to believe in Jesus— and there was a significant party of early Christian believers who were Jewish that thought that if Gentiles became believers in Christ, that since they were going to be included in the covenant with Abraham, that they would have to follow the rest of the Jewish covenant. They'd have to circumcise themselves and follow the laws of Kashrut and so forth. And, of course, the Council of Jerusalem uh, made the determination that that's not the case. Uh, The Gentiles don't have to follow the law of Moses. And Peter's testimony was decisive at that council. Uh, even though that wasn't his, his purview, if you will, was not specifically the evangelization of Gentiles. That was St. Paul's job. Uh, God called Paul specifically to make him the apostle to the Gentiles. Now, uh, Peter had another job, and that was to be the head of the church. And we find that not in the commission of Matthew 28, but in Matthew 16, where uh, Christ said to Peter, you are Peter, Peter means rock, and on this rock I will build my church. And the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Whatever you bind on earth is bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth is loosed in heaven. And the the three distinct metaphors that Jesus uses there to indicate Peter's unique status. One is is, uh, the title, The Rock, uh, which means the foundation, that on which the thing is uh, is established. Um, the, the, The promise of the keys, and of course the symbol of the keys in Judaism is a symbol of executive authority, to shut, to open, to admit, to exclude. And then the metaphor of binding and loosing, which is a rabbinical term that had to do with declaring something to be clean or unclean. Now, what some interpreters think is that within the context of Matthew, uh, the reason Matthew emphasizes Peter's unique authority here uh, is in view of what he knows took place at the Council of Jerusalem, namely that Peter's verdict about whether to admit the Gentiles on equal terms with Jews, uh, was to be held as authoritative, specifically because of Peter's unique status as this rock foundation of the Church and her unity, Um, and because there were those that wanted to reject the decision of the Council. And uh, at least for St. Matthew, um, it was in view of Peter's position as the rock foundation of the Church that the Council of Jerusalem has to stand, 
Um, so Peter had these two jobs. One, he, he had a, a missionary vocation to the Jewish people, but then he had this universal vocation uh, to be the rock foundation of the church and to be able to authoritatively determine questions like, hey, do we admit the Gentiles on equal terms? Well, very good. Lee, is that helpful for you? Uh, a little bit, but I thought it was James that um, made that decision in Matthew. No, no, no. It was, J- it was Peter's testimony that was decisive. James sums up the decision of the council and says, well, okay, you've heard what everybody said, so here's what the council has decided. But it was uh, Peter's testimony that was definitive. Very good. And Lee, thanks so much for your call today from New Hampshire. That opens up a line for you right now at 833-288-EWTN, 833-288-3986. If you're watching us outside of North America, you'll want to dial 1 and then 205 271 2985. Call to communion with Dr. David Anders in progress here on EWTN. Here's an email now from Mary who says, regarding medical comfort, to what degree is palliative care allowed in the Catholic Church? Yes, well, palliative care is allowed, um, and uh, the only limits on, well, there really aren't any limits on palliative care. What you can't do is you can't give someone palliative care if the real intent is euthanasia. Mm. Well, see, that's not palliative. No. That's murder. Yeah, yeah. Right? So if, you, if you're pumping somebody full of morphine and you deliberately give them the dose that you know will be lethal, mm. that's no longer palliative care. That's euthanasia, and euthanasia is not allowed. Uh, but you are allowed to alleviate suffering. Okay. Well, there it is. And uh, Mary, thank you so much for your question today. Here's an email from John. Hey, Dr. Anders, if God is outside of time, is heaven also outside of time? And would this make all the saints and everyone in purgatory and hell outside of time? Yeah, thanks. I appreciate the question. So the, the classic theological position on this is that God only is eternal and timeless. Uh-huh. And uh, obviously, our experience of time is a, a very embodied experience of time that is connected to the physics of our space-time universe. So our, our temporal existence uh, is different from God, but it's also different from angels and the separated souls. Because the angels don't have bodies, so they're not subject to the same kind of temporal constraints that we are, because they're not subject to the same material universe that we are. Mm-hmm. And yet, they're not God. And so the scholastic theologians postulated a kind of middle position between uh, eternity and, and temporality that they called avum, A-E-V-U-M, hmm. or eternity. And so that's the middle position of the angels and the separated souls, eternity or avum, not, not eternity, you know, capital A, capital sure. E, period. Right? Sure. And... And it's one of the distinguishing characteristics of eternity would be that there's still a kind of succession. Um, at the very least, there could be a succession of discursive thoughts, for example. There, there are ways in which one thing can follow another in eternity, not in the same way that it does on Earth, however. So the, the separated souls, those would be the, the souls of the dead who have not yet received their resurrected bodies, would participate in that eternity. At the resurrection, when we receive our bodies again, but renewed, uh, there'll be some new experience of everlasting life that will be different again from our current existence. Mm-hmm. We won't be bound by the same laws of physics that we are now. 
but probably also distinct from the Avaternity of the Angels who will not have bodies. Very good. And uh, John, thanks so much uh, for your email. It's called A Communion with Dr. David Andrews here on EWTN. If you have a question for us, uh, do give us a call, 833-288-EWTN. We have a line open for you right now, 833-288-3986. Here's an email from George at 12 years old. It appears that Jesus left his mother and stepfather in a frantic and totally avoidable situation for three days. It was without any apparent attempt to assuage their anxiety by simply informing them of his whereabouts. Did Jesus sin? Nope. Simple answer is Jesus did not sin. Nor did he leave them. They left him. Oh. I mean, that's what the text says. Yeah, it does. He, he, he went and hung out in the temple, and he just stayed there. Stayed. And they, they packed up, you know, the, the minivan and threw the, you know, the, <laughs> uh, the folding chairs on the back of the camel and went back home, and they <laughs> okay. left him behind. Okay, very good. And, uh, George, thanks so much for your email. Here's one now from Dan. Concerning the recent Vatican Declaration on Blessings, do the same rules for blessings apply to all avowed blasphemers heretics, atheists, pedophiles, racists, and all others who live in open defiance of the Church's teaching. I am confused by the breadth and reach of this document. Yeah, thanks. So, uh, you know, if if I am a, a, a murderer and a blasphemer and uh, uh, an abuser and all these litany of horrors that you articulated, and uh, let us say that I find myself, perchance, at a Catholic pilgrimage site— and I am overcome with compunction and decide that I need to straighten my life out and 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 develop a closer relationship with God. Uh-huh. And I approach a Catholic priest and I say, Father, would you would you bless me? Like I I'm in kind of a bad way and I'm I'm in need of a closer walk with God. And I'm not quite sure I'm ready to go to confession yet, but I sure could use a blessing from God to help me on my way. I personally would really hope that that Catholic priest would extend some pastoral sign of care and solicitude to me, right? And the the problem that you're having is that you are equating the offering of a pastoral blessing with the priest condoning or approving everything about that particular soul's lifestyle. And in fact, the Vatican Declaration says the opposite. It says that when there's a request for a blessing, that the priest cannot understand that to mean a request for approval of my poor lifestyle choices. And, 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 and the blessing should not be construed that way. But it can be construed as the sincere request by somebody for a deeper relationship with God, for help on that journey, which would be grace that tends to the life of holiness. Sure. Dan, thanks so much for your email. Back to the phones now at 833 833- 288-EWTN. Here is Lawrence in North Carolina listening on the iHeartRadio app. Hey there, Lawrence. What's on your mind today, sir? Yes, uh, Dr. Anders, you have um, stated uh, uh, many times that uh, the crucifixion is not penal substitution. That is, God did not uh, punish uh, Jesus. Yes. Um, uh, However, but is it correct to say that he did die for her for our sins? Of course, of course. Yes, it's absolutely correct to say that Jesus died for our sins. How did Jesus die for our sins? He died to 
to make his life an offering for sin, to, to give to God a sacrifice of atonement in satisfaction of, uh, of the, the, the debt of human sin. But the nature of that sacrifice was not substitutionary punishment. It was a, it was a vicarious offering, to be sure. It was an offering on our behalf, uh-huh. but not vicarious punishment. Okay. Is that helpful for you, Lawrence? Well, okay, but okay. In that case, would it be uh, correct to say, um, um, that he took uh, this um, punishment meant for us on upon himself? Uh, so it depends. It depends on how you understand the the one inflicting the punishment. So Christ was punished by the Romans. Christ was punished by the Jews. The human race sought to do its worst by way of Jesus. And, and so in that respect, we can talk about Jesus experiencing punishment. I mean, crucifixion was a, was a punishment. It was a sure. penal sanction. Um, but what we don't mean is that God himself expiated his wrath against the human race on Christ as if Christ himself had sinned. That's what Calvinists believe. It's not what Catholics believe, because that would, not only is that unbiblical, but it would also make God unjust. It would, it would implicate God in injustice, because you would have God punishing the innocent and acquitting the guilty. And that's, that's not what happens in Catholic theology. God makes the guilty to be righteous by fundamentally changing their character and remitting their sins. Um, so when he pronounces the verdict of justice against us, it's not a fiction. We have become just because he's transformed our character. And he's not punishing Jesus for sins that Jesus did not commit, right? He's mm-hmm. accepting the sacrifice of Christ on our behalf as a sacrifice of atonement, which is not a penal substitution. And in view of the merits of Christ, pouring out the gift of the Holy Spirit upon the church— that in fact changes our character and causes us to become actually righteous. The, the way uh, the Council of Trent puts it is that the righteousness of Christ is infused within us so that we become actually righteous, as opposed to the Protestant formulation in which the righteousness of Christ is merely imputed to us, though we remain objectively sinful. Big difference. Uh, Lawrence, I uh, hope that clarifies things for you. Thanks so much for your call. Here's an email now from William. Some non-Catholics say that the apostles were not really given the authority by Jesus to forgive sins because we don't see them doing that. How can I respond to this? Uh, poppycock. <laughs> Hogwash. Balderdash. Balderdash. We absolutely see them doing it. St. Paul in 2 Corinthians says explicitly concerning the man who was caught in an immoral relationship with his stepmother, I forgive him in the presence of Christ. Mm. He absolutely pronounces the word of absolution concerning that one penitent. Now, but I, I would like to say something about the criterion that unless we see the apostles doing something, then we cannot presume that God intends for us to practice that. If that were the case... Every church on the planet must immediately stop administering Holy Communion to women. Mm. Because there's no place in the New Testament where we see the apostles administering Holy Communion to women. Now, does anybody think that women shouldn't receive communion? I hope not. Yeah. All right? So I just point that out to show you that the criterion is false. It is not true that we have to witness the apostles perform an action in order to know that that's God's will for the church. Okay. There are lots of things we don't see— we didn't see the apostles eating pizza. 
Does True. that mean we can't eat pizza? <laughs> I hope not. Appreciate that. Thanks so much uh, for that question and that response here on Call to Communion from EWTN Radio. In a moment, we will get to uh, Matthew in Oklahoma, who is uh, listening right there in Oklahoma. Let's see. Uh, yep, looking looking like listening on the great Oklahoma Catholic Broadcasting, our fabulous partner there in the state of Oklahoma. We're going to get to Matthew's question in just a moment. We can also get to your question But you've got to make the call. 833-288-EWTN is that number. 833-288-3986. If you're watching us on TV, shoot us an email, if you would, at ctc at ewtn.com. ctc at ewtn.com. Back in just a moment with lots more Call to Communion here on EWTN. Do stay with us. Hey, what's stopping you from becoming a Catholic? We'd love to talk with you today about that and any anything else that's on your mind regarding the teachings of the Catholic Church here on Call to Communion with Dr. David Andrews. Our phone number, 833-288-EWTN, and that's uh, 833-288-3986. Matthew, listening in Oklahoma on the great Oklahoma Catholic Broadcasting, as mentioned. Hey there, Matthew, what's on your mind today, sir? Well, hi. I was just wondering if Dr. Andrews had any familiarity with the uh, Church of Christ denomination, and in particular, they have a, seem to have a peculiar, to me anyway, uh, uh, they don't allow any musical instruments in their worship services. And I was just wondering if he had any information on why they do that. Yep, I do. Thank you. So the the origin of this practice is found uh, in a movement earlier than the the Church of Christ, in the Reformed theological tradition, that's Presbyterian and Dutch Reformed, Calvinism, that sort of thing, came out of, uh, uh, began in, in Zurich, Switzerland in the 1520s, and then John, with uh, Ulrich Zwingli, and then John Calvin was this great theoretician and had a wide influence in, in uh, Anglo-American Christianity, Protestantism. Uh, there is a principle, we find it articulated in the 17th century Westminster Confession of Faith, that's come to be known as the regulative principle of worship. And according to Reformed theologians, the regulative principle holds that the worship of the Church uh, can only allow elements that are expressly called for within sacred Scripture. And they have a interesting that they come to this determination about instruments because instruments are all over the Old Testament, yes, right? Yes, uh, But really they're thinking about worship that is witnessed in the Church in the New Testament. They don't see musical instruments in the New Testament Church, and so they conclude that they're not, uh, they're not um, prescribed by the mm. New Testament Church, and therefore they're not licit. Now, uh, Alexander Campbell, who was one of the founders of the so-called Christian Church, was uh, from Presbyterian stock. His father was a Presbyterian minister who sort of left Presbyterianism and, and went off and did his own thing, and uh, and Campbell followed in his footsteps. And Campbell, his ideology was that no one had tried true Christianity until he came around, and that everybody else in the world was too beholden to some version of tradition, and that he was going to read the Bible as if no one had ever read it before, and give out the, the you know the final and authoritative interpretation, and so he founded yet one more denomination claiming to do the same. Um, but uh, but his movement was called primitivist, a primitivist or restorationist, uh, because it it claimed to sort of go back to the very beginning and 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 live by strictly New Testament principles when allegedly everybody else had failed to do that. Now uh, there are so many problems with this point of view that it, it, it one hardly knows where to begin. But the the fundamental problem 
is the idea that God gave us the New Testament in order to afford a regulative principle for worship. I mean, that is manifestly not why God gave us the New Testament, right? Uh, the New Testament d- does not serve as a comprehensive manual on Christian faith and practice and makes no pretensions to be such a document and would be utterly unworkable if you tried to make it into one, right? Because it leaves so many things unaddressed that need to be addressed. Um, Take, for example, the manner of celebrating any of the sacraments. The New Testament offers no rubrics, zero instructions on how to on how to conduct yourself in the maintenance of the sacraments. It's, it speaks of the sacraments, we acknowledges their institution, but doesn't tell you actually how to perform them at all. Right, which is one of the reasons why Protestants have been at loggerheads with one another over the proper mode of celebrating the sacraments. Mm. Now, ironically. That was one thing that Calvinists always asserted about the celebration of the sacraments, baptism in particular. Calvin, he's not part of the Church of Christ, but he was part of its antecedents, held that um, that baptism could only be performed in the presence of the assembled congregation. He objected strongly to the Roman Catholic practice of private baptisms, and said they could only be performed within the context of the Church's liturgy. And I remember when I was studying this in graduate school, it struck me as odd because literally every description of baptism in the New Testament takes place outside of the public liturgy. <laughs> every single one. There's not one baptism that takes place in the context of the gathered community. Not wow, one. Wow. And I thought, Calvin, what happened to that regulative principle you go on and on mm, about? You know, let's yeah. apply it consistently, shall we? Sure. And, and I mentioned earlier on the show a similar call that, um, uh, that uh, the New Testament has absolutely no evidence that the apostles ever administered communion to women. And, and which goes to show, uh, underscores the absurdity of the regulative principle. Sure. There you go. Matthew, uh, thanks so much for your call today from uh, Oklahoma Catholic Broadcasting. Appreciate that. Here is Nick now, a first-time caller from Somerset, New Jersey, listening on TuneIn Radio. We've been on TuneIn for many years. Very glad to partner with them. Nick, what's on your mind today, sir? Uh, just need a little explanation on the crucifixion and the restoration, because if Christ was human and, and God. So who died on the on the, cruci- on, the, on, the on the crucifix? And who was rest you know who who's restoration on Sunday? Was the human part because God doesn't die? Yes. Thank you so much. I really appreciate the question. It's a very ancient one. Now here is the challenge that we are faced with. If we say that the person Jesus performed some action and that only his humanity performed the action, that the divinity did not also perform the action, then we are saying that the person was not divine. What we're saying is that you have a human person, and then and then here comes divinity, you know, like a backpack or something that you strap on the back of a human person, such that something can happen to the human, and, and, and the divine is not implicated in it, uh-huh. right? Uh-huh. Uh, there was an ancient theological heresy called Nestorianism, and it wasn't the dying and rising that was the problem for the Nestorians, it was the, it was the being born. And Nestorius objected to the idea that Mary could be called the mother of God, and it was a common title for the Blessed Virgin Mary. And he said, I don't like that title because, hey, after all, the divinity can't be born of a woman. That seems absurd, and so let's just say that Mary is the mother of Christ, but not the mother of God. And, uh, and the Orthodox, uh, the faithful Catholics, objected and said, well, if you say that, if you say that, that Mary did not give birth to God, then, then 
how then are the divine and the human related in Jesus? You must you have like you must have this this integral human nature in a person called Jesus to whom divinity is somehow this adjunct, right? And if that's the case, then being united to Christ doesn't really unite us to God. It unites us to this person, Jesus, this creature, Jesus, uh, you know, who who sort of you know carries divinity around in his back pocket, but in, in a way that's sort of separable from mm. his fundamental identity. Yeah. And so what the church has concluded is that when you predicate when you say something of Jesus that you can with with uh, an equal dignity predicate anything of either nature right so so I could say um, that uh, uh, you know if Jesus ate pizza I could say God was eating a pizza if I say that Jesus was born of the Blessed Virgin Mary I could say God was in fact born of the Blessed Virgin Mary now when we may or if I say that Jesus died on the cross I can say that God died um, but not in such a way that the divinity itself is subject to change or decay or development. So we're not, we don't think that the divine nature, period, came into existence when Jesus was born, or mm-hmm. that somehow uh, the divine nature lost consciousness and swooned and went to hell, you know, as the divine nature alone in the crucifixion. What we mean is that the person who suffered these things— uh, who was born, who lived, who taught, who died, who rose, is both fully God and fully man. Okay. Appreciate that. And uh, Nick, thanks so much for your call today from Somerset, New Jersey. Here's a question now from Caesar in Sioux City, Iowa, who uh, called in and asked, Dr. Andrews, I'm a Catholic, but I'm considering becoming Christian. What is the difference between Catholics and Christians? I saw a video that said it was Mary and that she didn't play a big role in the Bible, and Catholics shouldn't pray to her, but to God. Yeah, thanks. So uh, I'm, I live in Alabama, which, as you know, is one of the 50 states of the United States. Yes. And here's a very bad analogy. Your question is kind of like asking, well, I'm an Alabamian, but I'm thinking of becoming an American. <laughs> and someone who said that, you would have to respond, I don't think you quite understand the relationship mm. of Alabama to the United States. Yeah. Anyone who is an Alabamian is is by default an American. Of course. Right. And uh and as a similar similar there are some differences with the analogy, but anyone who is a Catholic is of necessity a Christian. Because the word Christian just means one who follows Christ and we follow Christ as Catholics. And here's where the analogy breaks down. Alabama is just one state among many, albeit the one with the best football team. That's right. Right. Well, not this year, but not this most year. years, you yes, know, the best yes. football team for now, although we yeah. just lost our coach. I know. But, um, uh, uh, but whereas in the Catholic conce- conception, Catholicism is at the heart of the experience of being a Christian. And so other forms of Christianity have only elements of the truth and sanctification brought to us by Jesus. So the Catholic Church is in possession of the full package, so to speak, all of the truth about God, all of the means of grace, all of the visible fellowship into a single unity that Christ intends, those outside the Catholic Church lack one or more elements of that of that package. So so from our point of view, to move from being a Catholic to being some other form of Christian is a move in the wrong direction. Now your question, what are the major differences between Catholics and other forms of Christians? Well I've I've just articulated the main one. And it's not the Blessed Virgin Mary specifically, although she comes into it. It is the fact that the Catholic Church, as an institution, 
was founded directly and immediately by Jesus and intended by him as the principal means for the sanctification and salvation of the world. Every other Christian body had a human founder. Every other Christian group was not founded immediately and directly by Jesus. So, you know, take your Lutherans, for example. Well, they were founded after Luther, 16th century character. Yeah. You know, your Presbyterians were founded by Zwingli and Calvin and Bootser and Bollinger. Uh, your Anglicans were founded by Henry VIII. Uh, your Baptists were founded by John Smith. But your Catholics were founded by Jesus Christ. So that's the major, major difference. Um, now, there, there are a lot of others. I'll, I'll give you a few of them. Uh, another really big one <clears throat> is that Jesus founded the church. He founded the Catholic Church <clears throat> decades before the first of the Scriptures was written. Decades before the first of the Scriptures was written. And centuries before the Bible was put together as a canon, as a list of biblical books. For those centuries, the church did not lack authority or definition. Why not? Well, because she had the tradition that Christ had handed to the apostles, that it had been handed to their successors, the bishops, and she had authority from Jesus to teach the truth faithfully, without error. That is to say, Catholics have always relied on the tradition and the teaching of the church to define what it means to be a Christian. As part of that definition, the Catholic Church produced a book called the Bible that said, this is God's Word, and read it, it'll nourish you, and it'll inform you, and it'll edify you, and it's, 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 it's useful for teaching and rebuke and training and righteousness and worship and so forth, but it's not the whole show. Later Christians rejected the authority of the Catholic Church and its traditions and said, we're just going to stick with the Bible alone, thank you very much. Um, but again, that's, that's, to, that's to take a piece out of the whole and to make it the whole. Uh, so the relationship of Scripture and tradition and the Church is another major difference. Uh, another major difference is that for Catholics, the point of the Incarnation, the point of the ministry of Jesus, is to translate believers from the state of sin to the state of holiness. That, that, that God sent his Son Jesus so that we might have our character reformed, that we might have the mind of Christ and be refashioned in his likeness and image. And that redemption, salvation, means coming into this fellowship with God through his son Jesus that causes us to be made like him. St. Peter says in 2 Peter uh, chapter 1, verse 4, that we become participants in the divine nature. Now, many non-Catholics, especially most Protestant non-Catholics, reject that understanding of the ministry of Jesus and believe that Jesus came merely to forgive sins, or at least primarily to forgive sins, and to enable us to go to heaven, though we remain objectively sinful. Mm. And uh, and that's so again. That's to get part of the truth because Catholics believe in the forgiveness of sins. Yeah. But to neglect really the whole mechanism of salvation, which is this this transformation of the person being reborn in Christ's likeness and image, so we become actually righteous in his in his eyes. Caesar, we're delighted that you're listening to us in Sioux City. Thanks so much for your question today. It's called a communion here on EWTN. In a moment, we're going to get to David in South Louisiana first. Let me tell you about a great book now available from EWTN Publishing, Standing Strong, Good Discipline Makes Great Teens by Dr. Ray Garendi. Dr. Ray gives parents the tools they need not only to navigate the teen years, but also to enjoy them by unpacking issues ranging from sibling relationships and 
peer pressure, all the way to curfews and chores to overcoming backtalk and teaching your kids to avoid drugs. This is a powerful book, uh, including some key sayings for communicating more effectively with your teens and a strategy to motivate underachievers. You may have an underachiever in your family. How do you get through to that kiddo? Well, we can help you out with this book, Standing Strong, Good Discipline Makes Great Teens by Dr. Ray Garendi. It's available right now from EWTNRC.com. Buy Catholic, shop Catholic, EWTNRC.com. After David in South Louisiana, we probably have time for one more phone call at 833-288-EWTN. But let's go to David right now. He is in South Louisiana listening on Sirius XM Channel 130. Hey there, David. What's on your mind today, sir? Hi, and thank you for taking my call. Hi, Dr. Anders. This is weird because just this morning I saw your conversion story to Catholicism on YouTube on an old um, EWTN Journey Home. Oh, yeah. Uh, wow. I And I found you through a conversion story of an Anglican priest who converted to Catholicism shortly after being ordained in the Anglican. And I, and I was, you were mentioned, and I and I looked you up, and I saw... and. I didn't realize you were on EWTN on this show. So that's, Here we are. That's incredible. Wow. <laughs> well, okay, thanks for so, listening. <laughs> okay, great. Uh, and it was a great conversion story. I loved it. Um, okay, my question is about the German Catholic yep. Church. Uh, I do know that there's a lot of issues in Germany with the German Catholic yep. Church. And I know part of it is, like they say, well, we're losing millions of Catholics. Well, I do. I, I know part of it is because millions of Catholics that are registered to a parish are taxed 10% by the by the German government, and their money is then sent to the diocese, I guess. Yep. And they are sick and tired of being taxed. So they're renouncing their, not so much their Catholic faith, but they're saying, look, I don't want to be registered at, to the Catholic Church. Yep. And I know part of it is, if you're not registered, you can't get married here, you can't get baptized. Yep. Oh, that's true. So how can I help you? Right. Well, uh, it is that the main problem going on with the Catholic Church in Germany, or are there, are is it issues where the government is forcing them to do things because, like, they're holding that check in front of them, like, here's your money, you want it, you got to do this too. You know, uh, are they being forced to do and adopt these, you know, crazy ideas from the government that may go against their church teaching, and they're just going along with the government? Yep, I can respond to that, I think. So there may be some of that, but I don't think that's the fundamental issue, either in Germany or in the Catholic Church in Europe. I think the main issue is that uh, secularization and the spirit of the Enlightenment uh, have progressed culturally in Europe in directions and at a speed and depth that we don't see reflected in other parts of the world. And so uh, what is perceived to be the challenge of modernity and of scientific reasoning and of Enlightenment philosophy um, has made the faith seem less credible to people in, in, uh, in, in modern Western Europe. And the German church, as I understand it, believes that they need to respond to the challenge of modernity by accommodating the church's teaching, in particular its ecclesiology and its moral theology, to what they understand to be the, the modern scientific rational view of the human person and of human sexuality in particular. Now, 
<clears throat> what do we think about that? So one of the things that I like very much about Joseph Ratzinger, a German, by the way, who became Pope Benedict XVI, if you have spent much time reading Ratzinger, you know that he is a theologian that took the challenges of modernity very seriously and not in a merely reactionary way. So he doesn't respond like a fundamentalist who just says, away with all modernity. Uh, he, he responds to modernity by saying, okay, there are some legitimate concerns, some meaningful legitimate concerns that modern thinkers, uh, modern cultural institutions pose to the practice of the Christian faith. We have to take those challenges head on and not dismiss them and not simply give a reactionary uh, response. We need to take them seriously, and, and, and to some extent we need to incorporate them into our understanding of the Christian faith. But, but, I understand Ratzinger to say, the resources of tradition are sufficient to meet that challenge. And so Ratzinger's theological project, Pope uh -huh. Benedict's theological project, as I understand it, was showing how that can happen. How can you bring the wisdom of tradition into dialogue with the challenges of modernity in a way that preserves both the integrity of the Catholic faith and uh, the integrity of human reason. That, I mean, that's how I understand Ratzinger's project. Okay. Um, and so it was not, how can I dispense with the patrimony of tradition uh, in response to the challenge of modernity, but how can I show that the patrimony of tradition is adequate to meeting the demands of the challenges of modernity. Big difference. Absolutely. Uh, David, thanks so much for your call today. Let's go to Danny now, who's driving through Lower Alabama, listening on Sirius XM Channel 130. Danny, what's on your mind today, sir? Hi. Thanks for taking my call, Dr. David Anders. Um, my question is, it's not. It's actually from uh, a relative of mine. Um, what does the Catholic Church feel about uh, like tuning into like a non-denominational service, or like Joel Osteen, or one of these kind of you know these non-denominational um, churches. Yeah, thanks. I appreciate the question. So uh, it, 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 it depends. It depends. In a nutshell, the church maintains that truth matters. Truth matters, and it is not a matter of indifference what Christian minister or what philosopher or, 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 or whoever you listen to. It makes a difference. And some positions are right, some positions are wrong, and some positions are way off base. And uh, a great many of these popular television evangelists um, will lead people astray, and they have false doctrines, and they have, typically have a, a shallow understanding of redemption and the human person. And, uh, and if, if one uh, were to follow all of their advice and take their worldview seriously, then it would lead to a diminishment of a human personality and, and the scope of redemption at work in a person's life and could potentially endanger their souls, like mortally, potentially. Mm. I'm not saying everybody who listens to these folks is going to go to hell, but they're not availing themselves of the full riches of the Catholic faith and a rich doctrine of the human person and our understanding of relationship with God. So I would advise against it. Now, um, there is another kind of person who could listen to these sorts of people and might even need to listen to those sorts of people, uh, and that would be, say, uh, Catholic apologists, for example, right? Um, I, uh, I have to confess I haven't spent a lot of time listening to the particular preacher that you name, but because of my job, um, I spend an enormous amount of time reading 
anti-Catholic and non-Catholic literature. I, I, I mean, I read pagan thinkers, I read atheist thinkers, I do it all the time. Um, but not because I want to become a pagan or an atheist, <laughs> you understand, but because I'm trying to get a, a broad understanding of different philosophical or religious points of view so I can do a better job articulating the Catholic faith in conversation with those people, right? So it really kind of depends on your vocation in life, your education in the faith, uh, the state of your spiritual development, and so forth. Um, someone who is just learning about the relationship with God and, and the Christian faith, who's trying to grow as a Christian and, and edify themselves and educate themselves, they need to stick to exclusively Catholic sources. Once you develop a certain level of maturity, however, you can sort of broaden the scope of your inquiries. But in my experience, once you get to that stage, if you're going to look outside the Catholic faith for insight, televangelists are not where you go. Yeah. You're, you're going to start mm. plumbing the depths of, say, the philosophical tradition and sure. reading Plato and Aristotle and pagans that weren't Catholics, but they actually had profound things to say about the human person. Danny, thanks so much for your call today from Lower Alabama. Here's a question now from John. Dear, dear Dr. Anders, I truly admire your ability to understand the question and give back an understandable answer. Please respond to this one. While saying the rosary in English, the glory be has the word world in it. Whereas, if you look at the Latin wording, there is no reference to the world, but only eternity. This seems like a significant discrepancy, more in keeping with Jesus' teachings, that he was not of this world. What is the right way to understand this? Yeah, okay, thanks. So this is uh, uh, what we call an infelicitous translation. Ah. The Latin phrase is a secula, in secula seculorum. And the, the Latin word seculum can mean an age... Uh -huh. It can mean an era. Um, it could mean a world the way you might talk about, say, the world of NASCAR. Okay. You know, not like the space-time universe. Sure, sure, okay? sure. Um, and, uh, and so uh, if we were going to translate the Gloria from Latin into English today, we would probably use a different phraseology. But this translation has been, become traditional in English, and so we say world without end. But it's, it's infelicitous because really, really what the best translation would be Forever and ever, amen. Very good. John, thanks like so much. like that Randy Travis song. Yeah, that one. Yeah. John, thanks so much uh, for your email. Glad we could get to so many calls today and so many emails and uh, questions via YouTube and Facebook. Dr. David Andrews, thank you. Thanks, Tom. On the radio side of EWTN, we do this program Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday at 2 p.m. Eastern for our live broadcast. You can check that out by going to the podcast, which is available for you at EWTN.com forward slash radio. Once you're there, click on the words Podcast Central and you will find Call to Communion. On behalf of our fantastic team here, including Charles, Matt, and Rich, this is Tom Price along with Dr. David Anders. Thanks for joining us. See you next time here on EWTN's Call to Communion. Have a great day. God bless.